Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. Have you ever been made a promise? As humans, I think we absolutely love promises. When I was a kid at school, I was always either promising something to someone or being promised something by someone else, whether it was a friendship bracelet promise, a promise to be your best friend forever, uh, or a promise I'll never tell your secret, or a promise that if bad behaviour continued, you'd get a time out. We absolutely love promises, don't we? I think promises are almost like uh, some kind of human language that we understand and we communicate with. And sometimes we make promises that we keep uh, because they're maybe perhaps really simple ones. But for the most part, I reckon as humans, we're not that great at keeping our promises. Friendship bracelets come off, secrets come out, marriages break down, things can create a lot of hurt and a lot of brokenness. And promises can be a source of pain for us. One of my favourite Taylor Swift lyrics of all time is in a song called All Too Well, and it says, you call me up again just to break me like a promise. You can feel the hurt in that sentence, can't you? Um, But this morning, we're going to talk about the biggest and best promise that has ever, ever been made. As we've seen, as we've been going through our series in the book of Zechariah, this book is absolutely full of promises. And today, we're going to focus on the promise prophesied by Zechariah that was fulfilled hundreds of years later by Jesus Christ himself. So we're going to read from Zechariah 12 verses 10 to chapter 13, just verse 1. So that's 12, 10 to 13, 1. It says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for, for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great like the weeping of Hadad-Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity." So as you can probably see in this passage, it's part of an oracle or a message from God to Zechariah promising salvation for Israel. In these verses, a very, very specific promise is fulfilled in Christ, that God himself would be pierced and that through this, a fountain would open to cleanse the people from all their sin and iniquity. So as I mentioned, the book of Zechariah is full of promises and prophecies about what the Messiah would be like and also what he would do. So the book is set after the return of the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. So here, basically, Zechariah is prophesying to a group of people who had just spent 70 years in exile in Babylon. So these guys probably thought that God had completely forgotten them. I wonder if you've ever been in a place that feels like that in in your walk with God or in a relationship with someone else. You've been in exile. You've been forgotten. you're, You're waiting for them to, you're waiting to hear them say, everything's going to be fine. I've got a plan for this. You're waiting for them to break the silence. And as we saw in Zechariah 3, earlier on in our series, we're told that the forgiveness of sins would be connected to the coming Messiah, whom Zechariah calls the branch, or as Micah said it, the branch. Um, God had a rescue plan 
a promise of salvation, but he knew that without the repentance of sinners, this wasn't going to happen. He needed his people to cry out for mercy. Naturally, as humans, we're not sorry. You have to teach a young child what it means to say sorry to other people when they hurt them. We must be taught and learn to be sorry and repentant. So the passage begins with God pouring out a spirit of grace on his people. And the amazing thing about this part of Zechariah is that the prophecy is that God would convict people and essentially give them the desire for grace. I'd never seen this before in the Bible. Uh, The desire for forgiveness that wasn't ordinarily there in these people. So not only was the, the promise a gift of forgiveness and salvation, but it was even the gift of conviction of sin, the longing for mercy, which is what they needed in order to be forgiven. When the people received this, they then began to have the realisation that they'd come to the end of their strength and the end of their efforts. They began to cry out to God for mercy. This reminded me this week of just how often I can find myself in this cycle of getting up each morning, letting the struggles and stresses and sin patterns just take over everything. And asking for God, asking God for help or forgiveness is just the last thing on my mind. I'm absolutely determined to crash right on through the day and hope that nobody gets in my way of problem solving and controlling everything I can. And I had a moment like this a few weeks ago and eventually, at the end of the day, I sat down um, to pray about everything that was rotating in my head. Uh, And as I handed each sin and each struggle and each stress over to Jesus, it was as though he kind of walked into the room and calmly just stilled each of those stilling plates that I was trying to balance. God has promised to always meet us with grace. When we humble ourselves and admit to God, you know what, I'm at the end of my strength and my resources. I really need you to take over. I need you to forgive me. We can trust that that's what he's going to do. We can trust that he will meet us in whatever situation we're in. A few years ago, I was in um, Miami airport trying to get on a connecting flight, and I was desperately trying to find my gate. And this airport is by far the biggest airport I've ever been in and probably will ever be in. Um, It actually has a sky train that takes you from gate to gate. That gives you an idea of how big it is. Um, And I was completely and hopelessly lost. I was also feeling a little bit cocky and very keen to achieve this transfer flight without having to ring my parents, who were fast asleep in England. So I spoke to a security guard and asked him where my gate was, um, to which he replied word for word with, I don't care about your problems, ma'am. Which, as you can imagine, just made the situation just a million times worse. Um, the tears started flowing. Um, and then after another half an hour of frantically searching around and panicking, I realised my only option was to ring my dad. So he picked up, and very much in my dad's style, straight away got up a map of Miami Airport online, um, and then he just verbally directed me on the phone to, the, to my gate. I had reached the complete end of my ability and I needed somebody else to help me. And as we realise our own sin and our inability to save ourselves, then all there is left is to cry out to God and ask for help. All those thousands of years ago in the book of Zechariah, God answered the question of will Israel's rejection of God last forever with a resounding no? Because God had a plan to come and pick them up from their mess and set them on a new trajectory. And we can trust God for that same thing in our lives. Will God leave us in our mess and in our sin forever? No. When we come to him with a plea for mercy like these exiles did, he will always meet us with grace. Psalm 40 verse 2 says, He lifted me out of the slimy pit and out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. 
The prophecy then speaks of one who the people have pierced, who they will mourn over. And in verse 10, God calls this character me. He's referring to himself. The prophecy speaks of God himself as one who will suffer and be pierced by his people and that he will die for those who caused his mourning, who caused this mourning. This must have been utterly baffling to hear. Instead of the people having to sacrifice animals uh, or find a way to God themselves, God was now saying, no, I'm going to provide the way to me and I'm going to literally give myself. If you've been a Christian for a while, you may, you may have heard this you know, many, many times before, that Jesus came to earth as a baby, lived a sacrificial and perfect life of love, and then laid it down for us. But we need to be constantly reminded of this. Why is that? Because it's the power and the driving force behind our faith. The fact that Jesus was pierced on our behalf for our sin is the foundation of everything we believe and live as Christians. A couple of weeks ago, I met up with a friend, and we got on to talking about the the concept of grace. And the more we spoke, the more we realised just what an alien concept this is to us as humans naturally. Not even in any other religion that we have in the world right now does it really exist in the same way. No other god would willingly be murdered and give up his own life because he loved his people so much. Dane Ortland wrote in his book, Gentle and Lowly, to be justified is to be declared righteous before God, fully legally exonerated in the divine court, based entirely on what another, namely Jesus, has done in our place. But our hearts are wired in such a way that we constantly drift from a moment-by-moment belief in this full exoneration. This is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity, that we are declared right with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we acknowledge that we never, ever will. As this prophecy in Zechariah foretells, Jesus willingly went to the cross and was pierced for us, knowing that we would reject him, that we would continue in our sin. He did it anyway. He was so compelled by love. And in Luke chapter 23, we see salvation reduced to its simplest forms. Simplest terms, sorry. As Jesus was hung on the cross... A criminal who was hung next to him made the request of him, please remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. He showcased his repentant heart there. He just asked. And then Jesus said to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. Isn't that incredible? There is no possibility here of misunderstanding what salvation is or how it is attained. It's the fact that we can go to heaven and be with Jesus when we die as a simple gift of grace from God which we receive by simply putting our trust in Christ, our Saviour. Not by performing good works, not by going to church enough, not by posting the right stuff on social media, not even by leading a fairly religious life. This dying thief who was nailed on the cross next to Jesus could not do either of those things. He couldn't even move his arms or legs. They were nailed to a cross. All that he could think to do was to look at Christ and just ask, and that was enough. So I wonder what areas of sin or brokenness you need to bring to the foot of the cross today. What do you need to ask for? What areas of struggle or repeated sin do you need to put under the authority of the cross? What things do you need to come to God with and truly repent of? Because we see in this passage it's the repentant heart that God desires of us. Because he knows that true repentance and turning from our sin is that sweet spot where we really begin to find freedom rest and we will see God move in our lives. In Isaiah 30 it says in repentance and rest is your salvation, in quietness and trust is your strength.
Finally, I just want to focus on the last verse of this passage, uh, chapter 13, verse 1, where it says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Now, for the Jews who were listening to this wacky prophecy, they were probably asking themselves, why do we need a fountain? But for these Jews, Zechariah was upending everything they believed and practised about cleansing from sin. To a Jewish person at this time, this promise of being washed in the fountain continually meant that everything they had been practising in the old sacrificial system of killing animals um, to atone for sin was completely inadequate now. Zechariah was essentially saying to them, animal sacrifices won't be enough anymore. The fountain that had to be opened was not the neck of an animal, but the pierced side of the Son of God. And Zechariah couldn't even see the whole story yet, as they were still thousands of years before Jesus. But God showed him at least this much, that if anybody was going to be cleansed from sin, a new fountain must be opened. Now, there are a couple of elements about this fountain that I want to cover. Firstly, that God's fountain of grace is inexhaustible. And secondly, that God's fountain of grace must be applied individually. And I want you to imagine uh, the pond or um, lake or that expanse of water, whatever it is, um, that's so dirty in Platfields Park. It's so, so disgusting, isn't it? It has, especially right now, it actually has like a, a, a film or a layer of duck poo that just sits there on the surface. And there's like rubbish and litter that people have thrown in. Um, and especially in summer, it just stinks. Now, why is this? It's because it's a stagnant pool of water. It's not like um, a river or a lake that runs out to the sea and there's very little filtration going on in there. Now imagine the absolute opposite of this, a waterfall running into a fast-paced stream, something you might find in the Lake District um, that maybe um, runs out into the sea. I don't know about geography. Um, If you've ever seen one of these, you'll know that the water is usually completely clear, isn't it? And that's because it's coming from a pure source. It never stops flowing and it never stops moving. This is like a picture of God's inexhaustible fountain that will cover sin and impurity. It flows and it flows and it flows. I quite like when I'm on holiday to to just sit when I'm by the sea and look at the point where the sky meets the horizon. And it just looks completely endless. And it always helps me to understand in a more visual way um, what God's grace is like for me and for you. It just never, ever stops. You can't see the end of it. And you might be sat here this morning thinking... Yeah, but you don't know how terrible some of my my sins are right now, um, or the sins of my past as well. That's true, I don't know what those are, but God does know. And he opened this fountain exactly for that purpose. The fountain cleansed the sins of David, an adulterer and murderer. It cleansed the sins of wicked King Manasseh, who practiced witchcraft, offered his sons in the fire to false gods, and led Judah into horrible sin. This grace is completely inexhaustible, and it's inexhaustible for us. Charles Spurgeon points out that it would be completely ludicrous for somebody to protest, I can't bathe, I can't wash myself because I'm too filthy. It would equally be ludicrous to say, I need to clean myself up before I come to this fountain. God provides the fountain to cleanse the most foul, dirty, and defiled sinners. And their dirt can never, ever pollute this fountain because it just keeps on flowing to wash away all of our filth. Secondly, God's fountain of grace must be applied individually. This fountain won't do you any good if you look at it and think, well, I wish my friend or my dad or my sister would get under that water. They really need it. 
Or in the same way, it won't do you any good to look at that fountain and just think, well, it probably would be really refreshing to jump in, but you don't, and you don't do anything about it. In Romans 3, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If we compare ourselves with others, one of two things will happen. Either we might start believing that we don't need as much grace as other people. We might start thinking, well, I don't do that. I don't do what that person does, so I'm actually not that bad. I'm not as bad as them. Or on the other hand, we might start sinking into shame and believing that we're worse than absolutely everybody else. And that fountain of grace surely couldn't extend to our kind of sin. To receive the benefit of God's fountain, we must look to Jesus and recognise that our sins, as individuals, put him on the cross. And when we find ourselves in that place, as Zechariah describes it in the passage, a place of mourning, that is where we will find the grace and redemption and the strength to move forward. You can receive the joy and the peace of God's forgiveness today. That experience of a burden being lifted once and for all. And it's amazing to see what God can do with our lives when we surrender them to him. The gospel, this prophecy that Zechariah has foretold, is what changes hearts, changes the trajectory of people's lives. It should be what motivates us to live, not for ourselves, but for God and for others. It's never ever been somebody telling me off or shouting at me to act differently that has actually created any lasting change in my life. It's been the transformative power of knowing I'm forgiven and unconditionally loved by God that has led me to change. We need to be met by the grace of God first. Then we ask continually for the Holy Spirit to go on convicting us and revealing to us the things that we need to change.